This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore and I'm your host. We're still in kind of a strand here of guest host, guest lecture episodes while I focus on my family with the arrival of our newborn son a few weeks ago. So I'm so excited this week to share with you an episode featuring Kristen Kinsevich, who is a mental health counselor who works on staff at a church. If you're unfamiliar with her, make sure you check out her website, her on Twitter. We've had her on for the guest on two past episodes, so make sure you check those out. Links to all that can be found in the show notes, but a huge proponent of mental health services within church environments, faith communities, a huge advocate for that, and a friend of ours, a friend of mine. So, so thankful to have her sharing today. This episode is a kind of a a presentation that Kristen gave recently on stigma reduction in the church, so things that we can do in our church environments, our church communities, faith communities, things like that to help reduce stigma. She talks about different types of stigma, where, uh, where, what contributes to stigma, a lot of that type thing, and then some practical things that we can do, ways that we can help push back on that stigma within our faith communities. It's a fantastic presentation, so I really hope you enjoy it. I learned a lot listening just through editing, and I'm really grateful to Kristen for sending it over to us to use, so uh, make sure you tweet at her, give her thanks. If you like the show, make sure that you give us ratings and reviews, things like that. There's links to being able to support us on Patreon in the show notes. There's a bunch of resources listed there as well. So you can see that either in the show notes in your podcast app, if it has that kind of feature, or at cxmhpodcast.com. There's show notes for this and all the other shows. So make sure you connect with us, find us there. Thanks for listening, and here you go. Hi and welcome. I'm Kristen Kinsevich. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and I've been on staff at my church since 2005 in Lynn, Massachusetts. And today I'm going to talk to you about stigma reduction in the church setting. Now specifically we're going to be talking about stigma related to mental illness. There's all kinds of stigma um, and stereotypes that we have in our world today. Um, You can think of socioeconomic um, stereotypes or racial stereotypes. And all of these kinds of stigmas lead to discrimination and a lot of other problems. But today, specifically, we're going to be looking at um, how to reduce stigma about mental illness within a church setting. Um, And so let's go ahead and start by asking ourselves, what is stigma? Now, I've mentioned already there's some stereotypes and different ways that we view all kinds of different people. But specifically, as we narrow in to mental illness. I want you to just pause for a minute and close your eyes and imagine a person who is mentally ill. Get a really solid picture in your mind. 
And when you have that picture, I want you to pause on it because most likely there is some element of stigma contained in whatever image popped into your mind. Now, I use the term mentally ill intentionally because um, it's an example of ways that even our language can be stigmatizing. Um, we label a person mentally ill as opposed to saying that they are a person who is um, diagnosed with a mental illness or is struggling with mental health problems or symptoms. Now, I've worked in the mental health field since 2005, and even my immediate mental picture, um, when I hear that term mentally ill, you know, often I think most of us picture maybe a homeless person, someone who's kind of disheveled, maybe acting a little bit eccentric. Um, they may be, um, you know, out on the street somewhere, disrupting something, um, and maybe acting with psychotic symptoms out of touch with reality. And while certainly there are people who experience psychosis and often as a result of discrimination and, and poor care, many of them do become homeless, but certainly that is not the accurate picture of what mental illness is. And so I want us to just notice that even among mental health providers, um, certainly pastors or congregants, there exists stigma and biases without us even realizing it. And so part of what we're going to talk about today is how to reduce stigma. Um, and, and really calling out these stereotypes is a huge aspect to that. Now, um, when we look at the definition of stigma in the dictionary, Merriam-Webster Dictionary says that it is a mark of shame or discredit. And um, actually, historically, stigma was actually referring to an iron branding or a mark that you could put on yourself or someone else that would, you know, permanently mark you um, as something. I think of the scarlet letter as well. Was it? It's a type of stigma. So there's this label attached to someone. And so when we think about stigma and looking into the research specifically around mental illness stigma, Patrick Corrigan of the University of Chicago is a leading researcher. He is cited by almost every other article that's written about this topic. And he has written many articles um, with various contributing authors as well throughout his career. And so he actually defined that there are two types of stigma. Um, one is public stigma. And that is the idea of kind of what I was just talking about, the stereotypes, the biases that we have as a whole, as a society. Um, these are the things that we think about when we imagine, you know, someone with a mental illness. And then there's self-stigma. And Corrigan defines this as the internalization of the public stigma. And so when you are battling with symptoms of a mental illness, now that could be depression or anxiety or bipolar disorder, PTSD, um, even adjustment disorders. Sometimes, you know, life just um, transitions and you have a hard time kind of making it into the next transition without a little bit of help. Um, these things are quite normative in our society. We're going to talk about ways that um, stigma tells us some lies really about, about that. But um, when we think about self-stigma, it's this idea that, you know, we've internalized and believed the public stigma. And so now we view ourselves differently. Um, and they've done some studies around mental illness and self-esteem and the ways that stigma plays a role in that. Also, there are some things that contribute to stigma. And um, some researchers, Feldman and Crandall, in a 2007 article, identify the top three factors that contribute to public stigma. 
So number one was a fear of violence. And man, is that prevalent in our society today? You know, we have so many um, tragedies around our nation, mass shootings and other violent acts. Um, and often when we listen to the media, we hear them talking about, you know, mental health problems. Well, this person, you know, had a mental health history or even when talking about gun control, mental illness or mental health issues is a, is a factor that's discussed. And really this kind of discussion perpetuates stigma because it's giving in to this fear of violence and saying, if we can just figure out what causes this, then we can stop it. And unfortunately, um, or maybe fortunately, the reality is that mental illness does not cause violence. And in fact, it's a relatively small percentage of people with a mental illness who commit violent acts. Oftentimes, a much larger percentage of people who are struggling with a mental illness, such as depression or bipolar disorder, um, the, the harm that they're doing is actually on themselves by way of suicide. And so in that sense, the public at large is not at risk when it comes to people who have a mental illness. But um, that fear is certainly going to perpetuate stigma. Another factor that contributes to public stigma is the belief that the person is responsible for their symptoms. We're going to talk about the implications of that um, in the church setting a little bit later, but as a whole in society, I think because there's still so much that's unknown about how our brains work and how mental illness comes to be and how it can be treated best, there's a lot of advances in neuroscience and the mental health field, but there's still a long way to go. And as long as we are unsure, it leaves a lot of um, room for guessing and um, when people don't know what causes something, you know, often we tend to blame the victim, unfortunately. And so we um, look at it as someone else's fault. And that can be really stigmatizing because it makes a person feel like they're not good enough and they are doing something wrong to cause their mental illness. And a third factor that these um, authors cite as a factor contributing to public stigma is the belief that a mental, mental illness is rare. Now, the National Alliance um, for Mental Illness cites that one in five American adults will experience symptoms of a mental illness each year. And so 20% of the population in a given year is a pretty high percentage. This is not something that is unusual. Um, I believe one in four will experience it at some point in their lifetime. And so there's really a significant amount of population that's going to be facing these symptoms. Um, it's not this unusual kind of freak thing that we don't understand. Um, it's really a comprehensive issue and it's very multi-layered and multi-dimensional because there are so many different disorders that are all kind of caught up in the term mental illness. So we have to be careful when we're even using these words, even as mental health providers. Now, um, Patrick Corgan talked about something called attribution theory. And this is the idea that, you know, we attribute the cause of symptoms to a certain thing. And so how we determine the cause of something, what we attribute that to is going to matter for what our reaction is going to be. And so um, there are some common reactions depending on how we attribute the symptoms. And so number one, again, we mentioned already fear. That's generally happening when we think that the person is not responsible for their symptoms and also that maybe mental illness is rare. Um, we don't know when it's going to pop up. We don't know a lot about it. And if the person themselves can't do anything to stop it, 
then um, maybe it could happen to me at any point as well. And so fear um, definitely is one response um, that stigma creates. Um, then anger often, or pity, those can come when we attribute mental health um, symptoms to the person themselves. So when we blame the person, um, then that's when we often have these responses. Those are just as stigmatizing. Of course, anger is not a particularly productive um, way of responding to someone who's struggling with mental illness. And, you know, no one wants to be pitied either. And so that really doesn't help, um, especially in a Christian setting. We might feel like pity is kind of a better response or we might confuse it with compassion. Um, but ultimately, pity is something that looks down on someone else. And so it is a kind of form of discrimination. Now let's talk about how stigma is harmful because um, one of the biggest things that many research studies have shown is that stigma reduces the likelihood that someone is gonna seek treatment. Um, there was one article um, by Clement and a variety of other contributors in 2001, and they cited that in Europe and the United States, 52 to 74% of people with mental health disorders do not receive treatment. Just imagine if that were the statistic for cancer or diabetes or a variety of other illnesses, 52 to 74% of the people who are suffering are not receiving treatment of any kind. And a large reason for that is because of stigma and that self-stigma we talked about. Now, there's some other ways that stigma is harmful, um, loss of income or unemployment, reduced access to housing, discrimination in healthcare. I've heard a lot of stories of people who really don't get treated fairly by their primary care physicians um, when they have a mental health disorder because they often are dismissed or not listened to as carefully. And so, um, that, especially with anxiety disorders, that can be really difficult because harder to detect physical disorders may mask or manifest as anxiety. And when you've been labeled with some kind of anxiety disorder to begin with, then a doctor may not take the time to listen very carefully, or they may get frustrated um, if they need to do extra paperwork to help with disability claims or things like that. And so there's definitely discrimination that happens in the, in the healthcare field. And social rejection is another um, big harm of stigma. It's one of the things that I think a lot of people face in the church is, is feeling like a second-class Christian. And so, you know, that's how we see it in our church settings. And um, we'll talk about some ways to reverse that in just a minute. Let's think about the attribution theory that Corrigan presented us with and theology. And these are some of my thoughts in terms of the ways that we can see how we attribute the cause of mental illness and how that merges with our theology to create some really complicated ways of thinking um, that can be really stigmatizing. And so, um, one, I think when we focus on sin, you know, we look at that sin as kind of the cause of everything. And that's true in one way, in that original sin um, in the Garden of Eden did create a, a world in which disorder and decay and destruction can happen and do happen regularly. And so all illness of all kinds, you know, entered the world through that original sin. But then there's personal sin. And, you know, certainly it is not true that mental illness is caused by a person's personal sin. Any more than blindness, um, when Jesus encountered that and someone said, well, who sinned, him or his parents? And, and Jesus said, 
neither one. And, and that's still true of any kind of physical or mental illness. And even those terms, I'll just pause to point out that physical illness and mental illness, those terms are stigmatizing in and of themselves because it makes a distinction that I don't think is present. And so um, I think there is some movement towards beginning to refer to mental illness as brain disorders, um, but there's a lot more clarification that we need before I think we'll make that leap fully. But I, in my writing, sometimes do refer to um, mental illnesses as brain disorders, just to remind us that these are very physical illnesses as well. Um, but when we focus on sin, um, we can sometimes create an attribution of blame. And as we looked before, our reactions to that are going to be anger and pity. And those aren't really helpful, and nor are they um, reactions that Jesus demonstrated to anyone. Um, Jesus demonstrated compassion, but he didn't pity people. Now, also another problem in the church is that our narrow definitions, you might have heard the term organic disorders. This is a biblical counseling term coined by Jay Adams, and he really paints a very narrow picture of what can fit into an organic disorder. So he was talking about things like thyroid problems or brain injury or something that can be, you know, tested and measured. And unfortunately, where we are at with neuroscience today, we don't have a, a blood test to test for schizophrenia or depression or things like that. There, there are developments happening, um, certainly with Alzheimer's disease and others where there's brain scans that can show some deterioration and things like that. But we have a long way to go before we're going to have a simple blood test um, for depression, for example. And so that can lead us to the belief that mental illness is rare, which we saw was one of the top three factors for creating stigma. So we have to watch out for that because it's gonna breed stigma in our churches. And thirdly, um, the internalization of stigma often leads to feeling spiritually less than. So this is that Christian version of the self stigma, which is really a thousand times worse in my opinion, because um, it means that people are feeling alienated from God. And if the church is a place where people come and they're hurting or struggling, and then they feel alienated from God and blamed for their symptoms, then we have a gospel problem. And um, I think it's really important for us to ask ourselves, how can we stop this? Um, and so we're going to take a look at that. Let's talk about stigma reduction measures. And there's a lot of um, research out there uh, across the general population, and some of it does cover the church as well. Um, one of the best approaches that's been researched is really doing multiple measures of things that can combat both public and self-stigma. And we'll talk about some specifics a little bit later of how we can do that, but we wanna think about targeting a variety of stigmas and stereotypes kind of at once, doing a bunch of different things through conversation, through you know a media campaign, that type of thing. Corrigan um, notes that we can, can, we can change our attributions. So that's the great news is just because we've said you know, that sin is a cause of mental illness, you know, in the past, and that's certainly in the church history, in the, you know, more recent history of the mental health field in America. Um, you know, we can change that. We can learn more. We can understand better. And so I think that's our goal here as we try to reduce stigma. And um, some authors have really noted that the church can play a unique role in this stigma reduction in the community. So um, this is from Kinders and Vandermage in 2006, they wrote an article that talked about stigma reduction strategies 
And there are a whole bunch of different levels that they talk about where we can reduce stigma. So the intrapersonal level is the first one that they talk about. And that includes things like helping people get treatment or go to counseling, getting cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, things like helping a person feel empowered um, is really important for decreasing that self-stigma. Group counseling is also a really great strategy because it is um, a huge factor in not feeling alone in your struggle. And um, self-help and advocacy and support groups. Then you have the interpersonal level, and that is um, things just like basic care and support, which I think churches are uniquely designed to provide. Um, home care teams, I mean, you know, all the way from 30 years ago, churches have been really focused on cell groups, life groups, you know, small groups of some kind, and I'm sure that dates back much farther than that, but those have been buzzwords in the church in the last 30 to 40 years, so we're, we're poised to do that already. And then um, community-based rehabilitation as well. And then on an organizational or institutional level, we can create training programs and new policies. I think this is very applicable to churches because we can create um, a Sunday morning, you know, protocol for how are we going to handle it when maybe someone talks about, you know, suicidal thoughts. Or, you know, what do we do with, um, you know, when a child with some disabilities comes? Um, and there's a great book, I'll reference it later at the end, but Dr. Steve um, Gurkevich, I think is how you say it, he just wrote a book called Mental Health in the Church, and he has some really comprehensive ideas that I think are very helpful for this. Then on the community level, you know, thinking more broadly, just big education campaigns, having contact with people, building relationships, advocacy work, and something um, that these authors label protest, which is really taking the time to point out when um, stigma happens. And this can happen on Twitter or in podcasts or other things where we say, okay, this TV show, this ad is not okay because it depicts someone who had a mental illness um, in this way that is stigmatizing. It contributes to these fears that the public has rather than um, decreasing those fears. And so we have to be ready to protest and, and observe. And I think we also need to protest when we see that in the church, when there's a sermon that, you know, talks about depression as a lack of faith or things like that. We have to be ready to disagree publicly in order to make change. And um, then there's a the governmental and structural levels of stigma reduction. And I think we can all be involved um, on a local and uh, national level to help create policies that treat um, people who have mental illness fairly and do not take away their basic rights. Now, anti-stigma ca campaigns are happening all over the world and they're well-documented in the United States, Europe, and South Africa. So there is a lot that we can draw from and learn from. If you're thinking about how can I reduce stigma in my church, I have a lot of ideas for you coming up in just a second, but you can go online and, and find campaigns that have been done and borrow some ideas from them as well. Um, there are knowledge and information campaigns. There are certainly therapist-driven interventions that help with reduction of self-stigma, um, support groups like NAMI, media campaigns. Um, so what about in the church setting? Let's get a little more specific. Um, and here's a quote from um, an author, um, several authors, Blank uh, and his colleagues in 2002 um, said this, the place of the church in the delivery of mental health care is not well understood. Churches occupy a unique position because they offer counseling and guidance along spiritual lines, 
and often provide, in a, provide support in a non-stigmatizing way. Few studies have examined the relative merits of receiving services through churches and how churches link with formal systems of care when congregants need more specialized services. And of course, that quote, if you've ever heard or written anything that I've done, speaks to my heart so much because I provide mental health care in the church setting and am very passionate about making that a more common practice. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of room for research and for practice in, in the ways that churches can provide services and can link with other community services. So I think there's a lot of room for growth right there. Now, one thing that I think is really important, um, and these ideas come straight from the research, um, Patrick Corrigan mentions that we can frame stigma as a social justice issue. Now, I don't know um, the state of Patrick Corrigan's faith, but he hit it right on the money if he's, if he's talking to people from the church, because we care about social justice. You know, when people are marginalized and discriminated against, when people are oppressed, that we know that that's who Jesus came for. And that's our target right there is helping people in the margins. And so I think stigma is absolutely a social justice issue. And that's why we as Christians have to lead the way, not just catch up to society, but lead the way in fighting stigma in our denominations, in our churches, um, on national and local levels. So I think it's really important for us to think about it that way. We also need to talk about and reject stereotypes. We need to um, just be really open about that. And, you know, when things pop up, like we mentioned, protesting those things is really important. Just calling them out, just saying them. That simple one conversation that you have with someone who's maybe talking about, you know, somebody who's crazy or, you know, something like that, it's, it's just um, pejorative kind of language. Um, we can stand up and say, no, that's not okay. And right there, that's a stigma reduction measure. We can also use various forms of media to distribute information. Almost every church distributes a bulletin or has an app of some kind, a website. And you can put things right in there about, you know, how you think about mental health issues and different ways to get involved in the community, different ways to partner. And so that's a really good idea to do as well. Leading those protests, I think leading is the key word here. Um, as I mentioned, I think the church has to be in, in the front of that um, and not contributing to things that need to be protested. Unfortunately, that's often the case where um, there's sermons or there's um, public statements, you know, from from Christian leaders. And it's actually contributing to something that needs to be protested <laughs> rather than the other way around. So we have to be ready for that. And then fostering relationships. That is the hugest piece of decreasing stigma is getting to know someone and really having a relationship with someone because you understand the complexity of mental illness. You understand that people are people. And um, so that just opens up our eyes when we do that. Now, the church can offer mental health care services um, or refer out to other providers in the area. Churchtherapy.com is my website, and I write all the time on there about um, offering mental health services right there in the church setting. I think this is a really great solution, um, something that I think answers some of the, the problems and complications that we've had in the church setting in the past when maybe some pastors have not wanted to um, refer for mental health treatment um, and have kind of leaned towards either a biblical counseling model or 
you know, maybe just a kind of anti-mental health care model. And so certainly I think we can do better than that. And I think there are a lot of Christian professional counselors out there who want to work in church settings and there are no jobs listed. And so that's one problem I'm trying to solve in connecting pastors and counselors who want to work in churches. Another thing that I've known some churches that have done is hosting a mental health awareness day. And that is an awesome idea. You can just highlight it for the whole day. Um, you can bring in um, guest speakers. You can have tables set up um, with different providers in the area. You can um, just highlight and provide information. Um, and there is a lot of resources out there if you want to do something like that. Partnering with NAMI is always a great idea. You can offer church space to support groups that meet throughout the week if your church has a room or two that's available during the week. And then running an educational class is totally something that you can do as well. I'll, I'll say that I have two books. Here, I'll get ahead of myself. I've written um, a book called On Edge, Mental Illness in the Christian Context. And um, I also put out last year a leader's guide for that. And so what that is, it's an eight-week small group curriculum. So if you have a Sunday school class time or you have a small group meeting throughout the week and you want a, a curriculum that is going to cover um, how to think in Christian and biological and psychologically informed ways um, about mental illness, it's a really easy curriculum to follow. I've laid out everything for you. I've talked about how to talk about it in small groups, how to lead a discussion about that. And so um, it's really something that I would encourage you to take a look at. You can find that on Amazon if you're interested, but you just need one leader's guide and then each participant would have um, the book to read. And so you go through that book together. Um, and there's video content as well for that curriculum. So I hope you check that out. But also um, uh, Sarah Rayner on um, Tom Rayner's blog, had they had posted an article in 2016 about how to, seven tips for dealing with mental illness in the church. And one of their tips was about stopping stigma. And so I'll just go ahead and read that quote um, from, again, Tom Rayner's blog. It says, stigma regarding mental illness still exists in both our country and our churches. As church leaders, there are simple ways to re help reduce that stigma, including avoiding offensive language, words and phrases involving psycho or crazy or they're nuts, um, discussing mental health issues from the pulpit and in leadership meetings, using the church bulletin to feature mental health topics and supportive resources, and acknowledging that mental health issues are complex in nature and involve biological, psychological, developmental, societal, spiritual, and familial components. I think that's just such a great summary right there. Um, and I would also say that there are a lot of um, times that we use mental illness terms, diagnosis labels in, in jokes. Um, I've heard even in the past few months, pastors who, you know, make a reference and say, you know, kind of thinking in two different ways. And they say, oh, it's like schizophrenic, um, which is number one, a misunderstanding of schizophrenia, but also a highly offensive um, way to talk um, about a really serious disorder that affects the lives of a lot of people. And maybe someone in your congregation is suffering with that or knows someone who is. Um, other times we say things like, you know, oh, I'm so OCD right now, or oh, that's my ADD kicking in. And when we talk like that, we, we rob the experience of the people whose lives are impacted every single day by these very real and biological disorders. And so we need to be sensitive to that 
Um, some people will say, oh, that's too sensitive and you're going too far and PC culture and all that. But as the church, we need to be able to reach everyone and not marginalize anyone. And if we're serious about doing that, then yes, we do re require a certain level of sensitivity to the pain that people are experiencing. And so I hope you do take that seriously. There's other resources as well, the CXMH podcast. Amy Simpson puts out some great resources. Her book, Troubled Minds, is really spectacular. There's an organization called the Mental Health Grace Alliance that put out, um, among other things, a Thrive curriculum, which is uh, a peer-led support group for, for churches to use. Um, Dr. Matthew Stanford has put out some really um, interesting books. Um, the Biology of Sin is a fascinating read. Um, he has some others, Grace for the Afflicted as well. Um, and then Dr. Stephen Gurkevich um, and his new book, The Church, uh, Mental Health in the Church. And so those are just some really great resources that I hope you lean on and engage in this conversation. Certainly there's a whole network of Christians um, that are talking about mental health on Twitter. You'll find me at Church Therapist and um, my blog, again, churchtherapy.com. Those are really important resources to just keep the conversation going. Because we all have lots of different ideas, and when we all are talking about it, we hone each other, and we narrow down um, the, the topics that are most important. And we can share stories as well, good stories of ways that our churches are handling stigma well and reducing stigma, and then stories of p people that have been harmed that we can learn from so that we don't repeat those mistakes. So thanks so much for watching, and I hope you consider um, the ways that you and your church can enter into some of these stigma reduction strategies. So thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH podcast at gmail.com. A final note, if you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.